Good morning. Welcome to worship. We're so glad that you are here today. The sun is outside. I know some of you were questioning that orange ball in the sky, but it is a good thing to see, and we're delighted that you are here. Welcome to worship. If you are new with us today, we are especially glad that you are here. And uh, take your worship guide and find that third panel. There's a connection card at the bottom of that panel. It's perforated. Fill that out. Tear it off. And at the close of our service, there will be someone to take that up. It's just our way of helping us to get to know you better, and we're delighted to do that today. And if you are our guest today, we want you to join our pastor and his wife at the close of our service out in the foyer. They have a free gift for you. It is a copy of his book, The Privilege of Worship. It's just our gift to you to say thank you for coming to join us in worship today. We hope you'll be back, and uh, that'll be a special time for us as well. For those of us that are always here, we're glad that you're here, and it's a great day of worship. Let's stand and sing, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past.
What a joy it is, church family, to be able to celebrate the ordinance of baptism this morning for three who've recently come to faith in Jesus Christ. The first uh, two that we have being baptized this morning are brother and sister who both have been talking with their parents for some time, especially the older sister. And as they were talking about baptism and trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, both of these children came to faith in Jesus Christ in their home and then made that public here at the church. It's such a great reminder of how important it is to talk about the things of God at home as well as at church. The church joins families in helping to raise up uh, children. And parents are the primary faith trainers in families. And so this is a great example of that taking place in the Lagrange family. First we have coming this morning, Olivia Lagrange. Olivia, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Then based upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I baptize you, my sister in Christ, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Amen. And next is coming her brother, Henry. All right, Henry, step up. All right. Henry, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. All right. Then based upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I baptize you, my brother in Christ, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Amen. Next we have coming Sarah Broussard, and Sarah trusted Jesus Christ a couple of weeks ago in my office. She came forward, wanted to be a part of our church and to connect, and we got to talk about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. She prayed to ask Jesus into her heart there in my office, and she is excited about plugging in and becoming an active member of our church family. This is Sarah. Sarah, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes. All right. Then based upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I baptize you, my sister in Christ, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Amen. The Lord continues to transform lives here at First Baptist Pineville. We're looking forward to more of those transformations taking place. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Let's continue to worship.
Let's pray. Our most precious Heavenly Father, we thank you that the grave has no claim on us. We praise your holy and precious name, Father, and we're so thankful that we're able to sing praises unto your holy and precious name this morning. And we pray for Brother Stewart this morning as he delivers the words you've spoken through him, Lord, that lives will be changed and heaven will be abounding with love and, and honor and hallelujahs all over the place from souls being saved. We pray, Father, that those who are holding back because whatever peers may think or, or whatever parents may think or whatever, Father, that we let go of their grasp on the pew and walk this aisle this morning and give their life to Christ. We pray for those who have lost loved ones, Father, for whatever reason. I pray that you wrap your loving arms around them and comfort them as only you know how. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy, Father. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Jesus, our Messiah, oh. 
for he is worthy of all the blessing and honor and glory and power that we could give him glory to God today. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, choir. Isn't God good? Don't you love to worship him in song and praise? And we have done that today. And uh, what a blessing it is to be able to come into the house of God and sing praises to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, February is the month of love. Valentine's Day is just 12 days away, guys, in case you haven't checked your calendar. So you have just a couple of weeks to get something planned for your girlfriend or your wife, and you want to make sure that that's something memorable. Uh, one of our most memorable Valentine dates was uh, a short journey that we took back before we had kids and we were still living in Texas. And we'd only been married a little less than three years, I think, at the time. And uh, one of our church members had offered us a, to use their cute one-room cabin that they had on their ranch out in the uh, rural area of Monte County, Texas. And we'd never taken it up, taken them up on it. But as Valentine's Day approached, I called up Rodney and Fama and I said, hey, I want to do a special Valentine's date for Rebecca. Can we use your cabin? And so they set it all up and told me how to get into their place and all of those kind of things. And so I, I arranged a secret getaway. Rebecca had no idea other than that we were going to go to Denton, Texas to eat dinner that night at a nice restaurant. So we made that 45-minute or so drive to Denton, and we enjoyed our, our meal. And then as we were preparing to leave Denton, I said, okay, babe, uh, put on this blindfold. Remember, we hadn't been married but about three years, so she probably thought I'd flipped out. And then we started on our journey. Because we were going close back to where we lived, I wanted to mess her up in her mind a little bit in addition to the blindfold. So we drove a ways on the interstate, and then I cut across going west back to home, but not the way we'd normally go. And I hit a gravel road and drove a few miles there, which came out onto another paved road that then led to another gravel road that led to another paved road that then finally got to the gravel road that this cabin was down. <laughs> and we pull up and Rebecca takes off the blindfold and she's like, really, we're here? <laughs> because what had been a 40, or usually would have been a 45 minute journey took us about an hour and a half. And it was rough. Those dirt gravel roads were terrible. It had snowed earlier that day and had rained some days before. So they were rough and muddy and potholes. And I know Rebecca was needing some major medication by the time we got there with that blindfold on. But it was a memorable journey of love. This morning, we encounter, or something like that. This morning, we encounter... <laughs> another journey, but it too is a journey of true love, though not a journey of romantic love. The journey's found in Genesis chapter 22, and so if you haven't turned in your copy of God's Word to that passage, I hope that you will. Um, but we're going to relive the journey of Abraham and Isaac up Mount Moriah. Now, while this may seem to be a journey of love between a father and a son, it is actually the journey of two fathers and their sons. We're in this series called First Words, seeing God's word for the first times. And we're encountering the first time certain words occur 
in the scripture. And we're learning some things about those concepts. We've already seen the word sin and pray. And today we encounter the word love. Here in Genesis chapter 22, we encounter the first time this word occurs in scripture. And it is quite telling. This would be a journey like no other. It had been some 50 years since God had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and I will bless you. And the last five decades had been one great journey, a journey that had tested Abraham's faith continually. At times he had succeeded, at other times he had failed, but he always pressed on and he always sought the heart of God. It had been a great journey, but this journey, this one that he was about to take was the ultimate test. And we encounter the setup for this journey in Genesis chapter 2, 22, verses 1 and 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now we might wonder why God would ask Abraham to do such a thing. Does, does God approve of child sacrifice? No, actually he abhors it. He makes that very clear in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 31, where God says they have built the high places to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So what's God doing here? Doesn't he remember how important this boy is? This is the Child of the promise? Yeah, rest assured, God knows exactly what he is doing. And he is very clear about who he wants Abraham to bring to him in sacrifice. He says, your son, your only son, whom you love. There's no mistaking that. It doesn't get more specific than that. Which son? Your son. Okay. Ishmael or Isaac? Your only son. And we can complete the statement by your marriage to Sarah. Isaac, the son you love. Oh, that son. And there in that description of the son of the sacrifice is the first appearance of the word love in the Bible. The son you love. It's the Hebrew word ahav. Take your son, your only son, the son you have. Now, I have two sons. I can't fathom being asked to do this. The first time I ever preached this passage was just a few months before our oldest son, Zachary, was born. And looking back at my notes, back then I couldn't fathom it. Well, I really can't fathom it now, having lived with my sons. If God were to say, Stuart, go and sacrifice your son, I'd have all kinds of questions. First, I'd I'd wonder if I'd heard God correctly. And then I'd wonder if I'd heard God actually. And then I'm not sure I would say okay. 
I love my boys with an indescribable love. And Abraham loved Isaac that way too. Don't miss the love with which this passage begins. The love of a father and his son. And not just any son, a long-awaited son. A son promised by God himself. A son that only came after decades of waiting. The son upon which every promise God had poured for 50 years was writing. Abraham loved Isaac. But Abraham loved God more. And that's the rub of this story. And the love of a father for a son and the love of a son for a father. Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Abraham. But ultimately, God to Abraham and Abraham to God. There are two journeys in this story. One is of the earthly father, Abraham, and his son Isaac. The other is of the heavenly father God and his earthly son Abraham. The loving father Abraham looks to the loving father God with uh, questions in his eyes and God just responds with yes, that's the one. That's the son Abraham. Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, as I've said, in this command, God is not condoning child sacrifice. Rather, God is testing Abraham with the ultimate test. We're clearly told that in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. The problem is we know that it's a test. Abraham didn't. There was no narrator as Abraham was living this story. And so... Abraham has to face this ultimate test. And the other journeys of faith along the way, those other tests that had happened, had prepared him for this ultimate journey, the climax of his faith, where Abraham would be asked to trust God so absolutely, even when God's ways seemed contradictory to God's normal ways. Because in this request, God seemed to be against God, but yet Abraham trusted God. And so that Abraham was even tested in this way meant that he had become increasingly possessed by God. Some years before, he had emptied himself before El Shaddai, God Almighty, so that he might be completely guided by him. And now we see the result of that complete surrender in verses 3 and 4. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when, we, when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And it was coming. You know, 50 years ago, God had said, go, and Abraham went. And now there was a new journey, the hardest journey. That journey was to leave your country, your tribe, your father's household, ever more specific. This call was to take your son, your only son, the son you love, ever more specific. This was to be the journey of a lifetime. A journey that I think I would say no to. You might would as well, but Abraham didn't even negotiate he didn't beg God for another way. He didn't ask any of that. He was simply obedient. 
It has been said that delayed obedience is immediate disobedience. And partial obedience is complete disobedience. But there's no delayed obedience here because Abraham immediately obeyed. There's no partial obedience here because Abraham goes all the way. Abraham got up that next morning after the call. He saddled up his donkey. He went over. He started chopping some wood down to take for the sacrifice. Only he and God knew what that wood represented. What do you think he thought about as he chopped that wood? What do you think he was doing? I I think he had to be crying. He had to be remembering. But you know, the Bible doesn't tell us, so we can't spend much time there. The Bible just shows us perfect obedience. And Abraham heads out taking with him two of his servants and his son, his only son, the son he loved, Isaac. They journeyed for three days. I, I imagine it was a quiet journey, don't you imagine? Uh, what do you talk about when you've been asked to slay your son and you're in the last few days with your son? You know, when our oldest son, Zachary, and I are driving around town running errands or whatever, we joke and we kid and we, we laugh and I make funny noises and he makes funny noises and we, you know, compete even with funny noises. But I bet Abraham and Isaac didn't kid around. I figure Isaac wondered why his dad was so stoic. I mean, Abraham had to be. He was pondering his call. He was wondering how he would do it. And then he was wondering how he would survive himself after he did it. As he walked, no no doubt Abraham was wondering. He was remembering and thinking about the promise that had been made. And the long waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. And then finally, the joy of that promise of the son being born to he and Sarah at such an old age. And then all of those years they had lived recently, enjoying that time as father and son. But then came the reminder of why he was on this particular journey. And Abraham's soul uh, tore by the uh, conflict of fatherly love on the one hand and obedience to his heavenly father on the other hand. He loved his God, but he loved his son. Abraham and Isaac had lived many years together. Some scholars say that Isaac could have been as old as a teenager here. Some have even suggested as old as 30 years old. So he's not a little kid. They've lived life. They've shared a lot of memories. The hopes and dreams of your son are being realized. And every one of those memories that they had shared for all those years played in Abraham's mind as they journeyed. And the narrative of this story emphasizes their close relationship. Because as we read this story, we read his son, his father, both of them, his son, his father, 
both of them. Each turn emphasizing the relationship. Each step emphasizes the love of the Father and the Son. It was a three-day journey. And I imagine each of those three days of anticipating the death of Isaac seemed far longer to Abraham than the 24 years of waiting for Isaac to be born. And now... There was no waiting. Waiting would be a good thing. Could we have 24 years again, God? But Abraham doesn't ask this because he surrendered. And after three days, Abraham looked up. He saw the hills of Moriah before him in the distance. And he said to his servants in verse 5, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. If we're not careful, we can miss something in that statement. Notice Abraham says, we will worship, and we will come back to you. But isn't Abraham planning to be obedient and sacrifice Isaac? Yes. But we get a glimpse into Abraham's mind as we jump to the New Testament, where the author of Hebrews gives us insight into what Abraham was thinking Hebrews 11, 17 to 19 says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God would raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. See, Abraham was so confident in God and so confident in God's promise that the nations would be built from Isaac that Abraham figured that if he slayed Isaac on that altar, that God would raise him from the dead. Now, here's the wild thing about that. This is only Genesis chapter 22. Resurrection hadn't happened to anybody yet. Abraham hadn't seen that. He hadn't experienced Jesus' resurrection or the resurrections Jesus had, had done, Elijah's resurrection, all that's to come in the future. But Abraham has such faith in God that he knows that if he's just obedient, God's going to do something. Because if God could make an old lady who was barren get pregnant, surely he can raise somebody from the dead. He had amazing he believed that God sought only good for him and Isaac. He had come to the point that he was willing to trust God with everything that he had, his most valuable possession in which all of his hopes and dreams were built. And he said, we will worship and we will come back. Abraham had a settled hope. You know, hope for a believer is a settled reality. And that's what Abraham was going off towards. He wasn't sure how it was going to happen, but he had a settled hope. And so with that, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And with the mountain in sight, Abraham starts leading the way, and Isaiah shifts the wood on his back and follows his dad. We don't know how long the two of them walked if you've ever been to the mountains and you know that mountain's over there, it's a long way to over there. But they 
headed that way. And I can picture this scene of son following father so well because I hunted with my dad squirrel hunting so much that there's just that picture of where dad steps, you step. And there's that when dad stops, you stop. And where dad looks, you look. And there's that journey of going along the way. And, and when you're a son following a dad, you have a lot of time to think and contemplate the situation that you're in because you're not in control. And I can imagine Isaac following along behind his dad and he's like, got the wood, got the knife, got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? Oh, Daddy's kind of getting up in years. He might have forgotten it. Maybe I ought to ask him about it. I don't know if I should ask, though. You know, daddies don't like to be asked about that kind of stuff. But I, I'm going to ask him. Something's not right about this situation. And so this was not just any question that was going to come from Isaac's lips. This was a question that broke the silence and then had to have bring Abraham to his knees and his heart. Father, yes, my son. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Hear the faith in Abraham's answer. The Lord will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them went on together. The father who loved his son, the son who loved his father, and the heavenly father watching the whole scene from above. Now, we have no idea how much longer it was until father and son reached the place. And, and that place was exactly the place where God led Abraham to. God had told Abraham to go to the mountain that I will show you. And that's where Abraham had gone. He didn't go to another mountain. He didn't stop too soon. He didn't go too far. He stopped there because if he hadn't gone to this mountain, the mountain God had told him to go to, things in this story could have turned out a lot different. But because Abraham was completely obedient, he was at the right time, at the right place for God to do something amazing in his life. To experience the realization of Abraham's hope and the perfect demonstration of God's love. When they arrived at the place, Abraham continued his obedience. He built an altar. He took the wood from his son's back and he put it on the altar. And don't you know this whole time he's kind of wondering if God might show up and do something. But then finally he takes his son. And he has him lay down on the altar and he binds him there. And then he reached out his hand and pulled the knife from its sheath. To slay his son. And just as he raised the knife in the air. The voice came from heaven. Do not lay a hand on the boy he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Because you have not withheld from me your son. Your only son Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham 
raised his eyes looking away from the trusting eyes of his son and saw the provision, the provision of Yahweh Yireh, sometimes said Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. Note when the provision was realized. It was the very last second. Alexander McLaren writes this way, the provision is realized when the man is standing with the knife in his hand. The next minute, it'll be red with the son's blood. Then the call comes, Abraham. And then he sees the ram caught in the thicket. There had been a long, weary journey from their home, a long tramp over the rough hills, a toilsome climb with a breaking heart in the father's bosom, but there was no sign of respite or deliverance. Slowly he piles together the wood, and yet no sign. Slowly he binds his boy, lays him on it, and still no sign. Slowly, reluctantly, and yet resolvedly, he unsheaths the knife, and yet no sign. He lifts his hand, and then it comes. That's so often the way of God, to drive us right to the edge. (laughs) And when he delays to provide, it's for our good. At the last moment, never before it, never until we have found out how much we need it, and never too late, comes our helper. But then he comes, and thank God he comes. Can you imagine the smile that broke on Abraham's faith when he saw that ram? Can you imagine the smile on Isaac's face when they saw that ram? (laughs) And can you think about how quickly Abraham untied his son, they both jumped out, and then they had an awesome hunting trip to go get that ram, to sacrifice it there on the altar, and then the worship service that they must have had because there was never a time of greater gratitude Never a time of greater uh, sacrifice of substitution. Oh, they must have worshipped God there on that altar. They did worship together. Thank you, God, for providing. And Abraham named the place, Yahweh will provide. Yahweh Yireh in the Hebrew, sometimes said Jehovah, Jireh, The name, interestingly, does not highlight Abraham's faith. In fact, it highlights nothing about Abraham. Because Abraham's not the hero of the story. God is. God's the hero of every story in the Bible. And this story is all about God who loves. God who provides And therefore, the name places the emphasis on God. The name highlights the Lord's mercy. The name highlights the true father who loves his son. For God loved Abraham as Abraham loved Isaac. But what is more, God loves you and me like he loved Abraham. And he loved Jesus Christ as Abraham loved Isaac. You see, 2,000 years ago, God gave his son, his only son, the son he loved, Jesus, to die for you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. What's more interesting? 900 years or so after Abraham... The temple of God was built on this same ridge of mountains where Abraham 
almost sacrificed Isaac. The temple of God was built there, and for a thousand years, sacrifices of rams and lambs and bulls and other stuff and other animals were made there at that temple, there at that altar for the sins of humanity. The sins of the people of Israel were taken there, repented of there, covered with blood there. And all those animals died in the people's place day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And then finally, that only son whom God loved repeated Isaac's journey. You see, he carried the wood of the sacrifice up the same ridge of mountains to a similar place of sacrifice. There he was bound to that altar, that cruel Roman cross. But on that day, there was no ram in the thicket to take his place because, you see, he was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I believe Abraham saw prophecy even in his statement when he said to Isaac, the Lord will provide the lamb son. And God brought in the ram. But when Jesus was there on the cross, he was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the provision. He was Yahweh, Yireh, dying for the sins of all time. That day he died on the cross on that same ridge of mountains where Isaac had been spared, where animals had not been spared, all to show God's unmerited love for a sinful people if they would but repent and turn to him. He became the Lamb of God who would provide. God spared Abraham's son, but God didn't spare his son. We owed a debt we could never pay. Therefore, the wages of sin was death. We either had to die for our sins or something had to die in our place. Thankfully, God loved us too much to leave us in our sin. And so, God made a way for us to be forgiven. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, when we place ourselves on the altar in total surrender to God and in repentance of our sins, and then we look to the Lamb of God, we are allowed to get up from that altar and to have life in His name. God is our provider. Are there any principles we can reflect on? Yeah, there are a lot through this passage. This is so rich. But there are just two briefly I want to emphasize today. First, God's testing of you is meant to strengthen you. God's testing of you is meant to strengthen you. Abraham never flinched in this test. How could that be? Simple. The test that God had led him through all those years had prepared him for this one right here. And because of the training, Abraham's faith was exceedingly strong. The second truth is God's providing for you is meant to prompt worship from you. When the ram was found, Abraham and Isaac worshipped God. And I do believe it was like they had never worshipped God before. When God provides, we should worship. And he already has provided in so many ways, hasn't he? More than we could ever tell. All of us are exceedingly blessed. Though we may be concerned about a bill here or there, we have an abundance. Though we may be concerned about a diagnosis or an illness, we're alive. 
And though our families may not be perfect, we have them. And all of that came to us from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. That should prompt joyful worship. I guess those two lessons really, though, only point to one key truth, and that is God loves you. God loves you. More than you know, more than you can imagine, more than you can explain. So do you know that? Have you watched this journey of these fathers and these sons and realized his love for you? I told you to not miss the love with which the passage began, but don't miss the love with which it ended either because that is the greatest love at all. Do you love him? Are you returning that love to him in repentance and faith and trusting him as your Lord and Savior? If you've never done that, we invite you to come today and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you are a believer today, are you showing that love to him as you really should in grateful expression? Does your love for God exceed your love for everything else? It's a big question. God loves you. Do you love him? Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for the word that you've given. And Lord, I pray for any of those who are in this congregation today who have not trusted you as their Lord and Savior, God, that they might do that today. May today be the day of salvation and transformation for them. Lord, do a work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.